You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based championship team. It's the amazing Rico Bronia podcast with your host, Evan Roberts. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we went from the sweepers to the sweepies as the New York Mets get swept by the Toronto Blue Jays and take a homestand that looks so promising after the three wins against the Philadelphia Phillies and they flush it down the toilet. And it has created, in my brain, a lot of confusion. I'm very, very confused about this team. I'm sure that most people just think they stink. <laughs> I think they, after you lose three straight to the Blue Jays and the offense is inept, I think that most people listening are going to probably scream at the radio or their phone and say, you're a schmuck. They're just not any good. I am deeply, deeply confused about this team. Three games against Philadelphia were, to me, their biggest flaw started to settle down. And it actually continued in the Toronto series. For the most part, they pitched well. For the most part, they pitched okay. But the offense did absolutely nothing. Highlighted by these three games against the Blue Jays, in which they score five runs in three games. And four of those runs came on solo home runs on Sunday afternoon. They get shut out on Friday. They score one measly run on Saturday. And then the four runs they score on Sunday, great. They fought back. They were down in the game. They made it a game, but it all went for naught. And so now as I sit here, 30 and 30, 500 team, my initial reaction is, I don't know what the hell this team is. And maybe that means they're mediocre. Maybe that means they're 500. Maybe that means we're going to do this all season long where they'll have a couple of days and we'll feel really good. And then they'll have a couple of days and we'll feel really, really bad. And maybe this is what we're looking at for the next 102 games. But this was a major, major buzzkill weekend after what they did against Philadelphia, after sweeping three games against the Philadelphia Phillies. And here's the truth. When you look at who to blame, it's kind of simple. I know it's not fun to blame everybody. We like to blame one guy. We like to pick one person. We like to boo one person. We like to criticize one person. It's everybody. This lineup over the three games against the Blue Jays, and look, they weren't hitting the lights out against Philadelphia either, but they won games, and they scored enough runs to win three games. So we were able to overlook it. Because look, you're not going to score six, seven runs every game. But when you look at these three games against Toronto, other than Tommy Pham, who hit two home runs in the Sunday game, and I guess Mark Canna had a couple of good games, outside of that, let's crush everybody. Want to start with Francisco Lindor, who heard most of the boos? Fine. Even on Sunday, he did get a base hit, which was nice to see, but he struck out three times, and he's hitting 212. <laughs> and he's stuck on 40 RBIs. You know, Pete Alonso hit the home run in the sixth inning, but Pete Alonso was very, very quiet this weekend. Outside of the home run, he had one other hit, and it was a single. Want to rip him? Let's go. Jeff McNeil missed the batting champion last year. What the hell's he done? Brandon Nimmo. I thought Brandon Nimmo was a huge culprit because if you go back, and we'll go through all three games, but if you go back to the tone setter of this weekend, I would go back to game one Friday night in the third inning. The New York Mets are set up. They have runners on first and third, if I'm not mistaken, first and third, 
and nobody out, down one nothing in the third, and they have Nimmo, Lindor, and McNeil coming up. The least you could do is come back and tie that game, and Brandon Nimmo, who we all love, swung at the first pitch and popped it up in foul territory, and he was lifeless this weekend. So we can keep going. We can go through every name and criticize certain at-bats, but this was a suck fest offensively from top to bottom. Couple of numbers before we dive deep in a Friday night's game. And we got a lot to cover. I'll tell you about a horrible experience I had personally at City Field that hopefully you can learn from. So it's one of those things that's not totally selfish. It's not just me complaining. It's an experience that you could say, okay, I'm not going to do that. I heard what Evan said on the Rico. I'll learn from that. So we'll get to that later on, plus Lindor's handling of the booze and what he had to say. And maybe the Mets are right. Kodai saying it can't pitch on regular rest. Okay, we'll do all that. But let's get to Friday night's game. Is that where I was going to start Friday night's game? Yeah. Justin Verlander on the second pitch of the game <laughs> gives up a home run to George Springer. And this one really annoyed me because it's a Friday night. We have an hour and a half rain delay, which felt like it was unneeded. I got to the game at about 7.10. I met my son and my wife who took the train. They had missed their first train, so they showed up right at 710 as well. So I didn't mind the rain delay at first. I was like, okay, got a chance to settle down. He wants to score the game, get his scorebook ready, want to pick up some dinner. This is perfect. But it turned into an hour and a half, and it felt like it was completely unnecessary because it was barely raining. It was like drizzling, and it was sunny out. And then the other thing that annoyed me is I see that Chris Bassett's wife is in labor. So the human in me says, congratulations. I got no ill will towards Chris Bassett. That's great. Chris Bassett's going to be a dad. I assume again. And the reason I say I assume it's again is because if he was having his first kid, there's no way his wife was going to allow him to pitch a Friday night game against the Mets after an hour and a half rain delay. And then, yeah, when the game's over, I'll fly back up to Toronto and I'll say hi to my kid. Like if that's his first kid, my first of all, I think if it was any kid I had, there's no way AI do it, and my wife would let me. Now, you want to tell me it's the World Series? Okay, different story. We're having a discussion. It's a Friday night against the Mets. Chris Bassett, I'll hand this to him. He's the anti-Noah Syndergaard. Noah Syndergaard wanted to avoid the Mets at all costs, and Chris Bassett's like, no, 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 no. I don't care if a baby's popping out. I'm pitching at City Field on this Friday night. But when I saw, hey, he's going to leave after the game, and there was a rain delay. I don't know if you thought this way, Hoff. I figured he's not making the start, and the Mets are going to get a little break because they really don't have anyone to fill in necessarily, and the Mets are going to get an advantage of a bullpen day facing Justin Verlander. When I saw Bassett still pitching when this game started at 840, I was stunned and massively disappointed. Yeah, I was expecting um, him not to either A, get the start, or him get scuffled early and have to get pulled early because he was distracted. Instead, he was the exact opposite, and he basically pimped the hell out of us. <laughs> oh, my God. He, he he really was tremendous. I'll hand it to him. Verlander, and let's start with Verlander, and then we'll rip the offense because there are some positives to discuss from this weekend. After he gives up the home run to Springer, which was a horrible tone setter because after you wait for an hour and a half, and it's a huge crowd, packed crowd, it's firework night, I got my son next to me with a scorecard for the second pitch of the game to be deposited over the left center field fence is an absolute buzzkill. But to Verlander's credit, he got through the rest of the first. He pitched a one, two, three second. He got through the third. He never dominated this game. You know, usually Verlander will get into his trouble early and then he'll lock it down and start to cruise. He never actually cruised that second inning, that one, two, three inning in the second was actually the only one, two, three inning he pitched. And his pitch count was expanding early on. So I certainly got the feeling, wow, he's not really going to be able to go that deep into this game. You know, maybe he'll give us five or six. Gets through the fourth after a leadoff walk. Gets a nice, nicely turned double play by Pete. Gets out of the fifth. And this is where I think things are interesting for Buck. He's at 87 pitches through five. Should he start the sixth inning? Yeah, I don't think 87 is a crazy number. But I'm thinking he's going to have to be economical to get through this sixth inning. And you are facing the heart of the order. He gives up a leadoff infield single to Bo Bichette, and then he walks Vlad Guerrero. So now the pitch count 
is at, I'd say it's like 96 with two on and nobody out. How the hell is he getting through this inning? Unless he gets a big double play. Strikes out Brandon Belt, a long at-bat. Now his pitch count's over 100. Strikes out Matt Chapman. Pitch count's definitely over 100. And he can't get Whit Merrifield out because he gets an infield hit. 111 pitches, bases loaded, two outs, Dalton Varsho coming up. And I loved, I got to tell you, I know it's only his sixth start of the season and he's a senior citizen and he's 40 years old and you don't want him to wear down in October. Well, guess what? You got to get to October. (laughs) Yeah, there's no guarantee there's going to be freaking October. I love the fact he let him stay in the game to face Varsho. 111 pitches, bases loaded two out. Because think about it. Who is he going to if he takes Verlander out of this game? I guess Brooks Raley's an option, a guy he never used in this game, so maybe not. Dominic Leone, who he ended up going to in the seventh inning. There really isn't a good option other than letting Verlander finish the job. And I think Leone was the guy warming up, if memory serves correct. And Verlander battles Varsho and gets him out at 117 pitches which in 2023 world is an incredibly high number, an incredibly high number. So I commend Buck for letting Verlander finish his job, six innings job. I commend Verlander for somehow fighting through it and keeping the Mets in the game. Because while all this was going on, the Met offense did nothing. And I mentioned this briefly before, the real moment in this game, and it turned out to be the the tone setter for the entire weekend. Because over the weekend, the Mets would take 19 at-bats with runners in scoring position. 19 over three games, which is not a crazy number. It's about six a game. And they went an ungodly 0 for 19. Little did I know on Friday that when they had the top of the order up with first and third and nobody out, that would be the real tone setter for that 0 for 19. And remember how it sets up. Mark Canna gets a hit, picking up right where he left off from the Philly series. Francisco Alvarez hits a ground ball to first base, and Vladimir Guerrero can't make the play. Makes a bad play, and then Alvarez does this great job of getting to first base, kind of skimming away from the tag. So you're set up with first and third, nobody out, and the top of the order coming up. At the minimum, you got to tie this game. So let's take your pick on who you want to destroy for this. Brandon Nimmo for swinging at the first pitch and hitting a foul pop-up. That's my option, by the way. Number two is Lindor, who has been in this just massive batting slump. He strikes out looking, and he struck out looking a lot, it seemed, this weekend. And then Jeff McNeil, who has a chance to clean up the entire mess, hits a foul pop-up. It was such a meek way to go out when you got Bassett on the ropes early with first and third nobody out. And from that point, the Mets never really threatened again. They, they never did. Bassett was in complete control. He barely broke a sweat. He didn't throw a lot of pitches. He did get one incredible play by Matt Chapman. Mark Canna hit a line drive in the fifth inning, and Chapman made this headlong dive and made this incredible play. And Bassett dominated, and they got Chris Bassett to pitch into the eighth inning. <laughs> so hour and a half delay, as he's you know going to eventually board a plane to see his kid being born, And then he pitches into the eighth inning, which isn't even that common. And John Schneider takes him out with two outs in the eighth inning, up one nothing, and he goes to Tim Isa. And then we get the situation that Pete Hoffman has been fearing for months and months and months. one nothing game, bottom of the eighth inning, and Brandon Nimmo strikes out on a pitch clock violation. And we saw a few of these this weekend. We saw a walk on a pitch clock violation. We saw a couple of strikeouts on a pitch clock violation. We saw a non-pitch clock violation when there should have been a pitch clock violation. I think it was when Vladimir Guerrero Jr. grounded out on Saturday. Uh, So we saw a lot of that this weekend. I know that really pissed you off, off, right? Annoyed you? Oh, that was, uh, I mean, that was my worst nightmare come true, like you said. And my biggest frustration is it almost seemed like you were saying, like, they're going to figure it out. And I've seen so many pitchers and catchers and batters use the timeout, use things to their advantage. And so I was like, you know what? Maybe Evan's right. 
And then all of a sudden, <laughs> in, the, in one of the biggest moments in the game, there it is, right front center, Brandon Nemo. It, it did seem, though, for weeks and weeks and weeks, we never saw anything. Like, this was really the first time, and it all happened in the course of three days, where we saw so many of these violations that turned into a walk, a strikeout, uh, the one that wasn't called with Vladimir. It seems like for weeks, maybe even months, we never really had anything with it. Now, it just was very, very quiet. You almost forgot about the pitch clock for a while. Well, well, that's because, like you said, like and Francisco Alvarez has been really good at this. The pitchers have been good at this. Like, you know, basically stepping off the mound. Yes. They're taking, using their timeouts wisely, and that was good. But again, it just seemed like it even came up on Brandon Nimmo. The, the importance of the situation, it's almost like he forgot where he was for a second. He didn't. He was a tick off of getting in the box. He, you know, I got to tell you, what, what annoyed me less was that there was nobody on base. And I think watching this game, there was no sign anything was going to happen. There was no sign that Nimmo, who had fouled out in the third inning, who had struck out in the first inning, he hit the ball well in the sixth inning. There was no sign like he was going to rip a triple or anything or hit a home run there, I say, to tie the game. So I, it makes yeah, me feel a little bit better. But but we just, okay, so here's the thing. This is why I disagree with you, though, is because Bassett's out. They couldn't touch him. And Nemo has been doing fantastic about against lefties, which they brought in Miza. And it's like, oh, right. perfect. He's going to find a way to get up. This is the moment that we've actually – we got past the starting pitcher. We got it. We got to the bullpen. We got the situation we want. We we pulled a uh, – uh, when Buck got out smarter with the Vogelback situation with Tampa right. Bay, we, we, we crushed Schneider on this. We got what we wanted, and it failed. Yeah, it did. Probably was going to fail anyway, but I, I see what you're saying. I, I want to go back one inning earlier because I thought this was interesting, and I'll probably get a lot of crap for saying this, but it went through my mind. In the seventh inning, the Mets got a two-out single by Starling Marte. He promptly stole second base, so they were set up with a man on base, two outs in the seventh. Bassett's still on the mound, and he was dominating, and Mark Vientos came to the plate. Mark Vientos got the start at DH. He started on Friday. He started on Sunday. He had struck out. In the two previous at-bats, meekly, he struck out on three pitches in the second inning looking. He struck out swinging in the fifth inning. He looked completely overmatched by Chris Bassett. And I gave it a serious thought. I got to tell you, I gave, because, and I said this on the last Rico, I'm about winning. I'm about what gives the team the best chance to win. It's not just about playing young players because I just want to see what they got. Like a part of why we want to see what they got is because we think they give the Mets the best chance to win. So in the seventh inning, after Vientos looked as bad as he did against Bassett, and he's facing him for a third time, and now you're set up with a man on base and eventually a runner on second base when Marte stole second, I thought about the bench. I thought about, hey, is this possibly a good time to pinch it for Vientos? You have Daniel Vogel back on the bench. You've got Nito, who's not an option. Tommy Pham, Eduardo Escobar. I think what scared me off about it was – do you have confidence in any of those guys? And the answer is no. Now, Vogelback ended up having a good Saturday, which we'll get to, but there was no sign of, hey, let me go to Vogelback in the seventh inning with a man on base. And I know that would have driven everybody nuts. Like, that would have been the biggest thing out of Friday. Like, can you believe Buck pinch it for Vientos with Vogelback? I cannot be the only one, though, that thought about it because Vientos looked miserable in those first two at-bats. He lets him hit. He grounds out. So this was one of my first guesses where it's a thought, a thought of, hey, do I have a better option on my bench? Now, maybe Escobar is the answer, even though he's a better right-hand hitter than left. Maybe that. Maybe you're thinking about Escobar. So I'm not saying it has to be Daniel Vogelback. Really, it's one of two guys. You're either sending up Vogelback or you're sending up Escobar to pinch it, or you're letting Vientos hit. But I thought Vientos looked so bad in those two at-bats, I thought about it. That's just me. So well, kill me if you want. Well, that's why you got to let Vientos get the bats. We saw this. Now, listen, I'm not saying that Alvarez and Vientos are the same type of player, but we saw Alvarez early on scuffle in these same spots. And Vientos just hasn't had the opportunities. So yeah. you give him those opportunities, and eventually you hope it's going to start working out. Yeah. More at-bats against the tough regular like Chris Bassett that if it doesn't pay off in this game, it pays off down the road. Now, before I get to the second game of this series, obviously it was a lifeless 3-0 loss. They gave up the two runs in the ninth inning when uh, Jeff Brigham came in and gave up the home run of our show. Um, I know one pushback one could have about this was, it's only one nothing. Why not go to one of your better relievers? Why not go 
to David Robertson or Adam Adovino. I think part of the problem with this is the Mets have so few relievers that you can trust. It's not a long list. It's really David Robertson. But yeah, Adam Adovino, you have higher on your trust chart than Jeff Brigham. And I totally get that. But I think as a manager, you have to weigh the pros and the cons. If you use Robertson and he keeps it at one nothing, and you don't score a run, you've almost used one of your big bullets. And now while you may use Robertson on Saturday, you may not be able to use him as long. Or maybe you don't use him on Saturday because it would have been three out of four games, and now he's not available. So I think it's one of those tricky spots as a manager where you want to win that game, but how does it impact you on Saturday, Sunday? I was pissed in the moment when Varsho hit that bomb, especially on a 3-0 pitch, a cookie right down the middle. But then the Mets go out the ninth, and they don't score any runs. They got shut out. So if he had used Adovino or Robertson, and he had kept the game at one nothing. I hate to tell you this, but everything probably ends up the same. I don't think all of a sudden the Lindor fly ball in the ninth that went to the warning track goes a few more feet. It's a 1-1 game. It's probably the same crap. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly, so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. So I get to this game at 710. Here's my story about a bad experience I had, and I hope that people can use this experience to better their night or day at City Field. So I was told numerous times, hey, when you use the ballpark app, which is how most of us use an app to get our tickets to go in, the ballpark app, whether you bought tickets or you're a season ticket holder or somebody gave you tickets, use the ballpark app. On the ballpark app, they've got this thing called mobile ordering. So here I am with my son, my oldest son, and my wife. I don't usually eat at City Field. I've made that clear. I usually bring my own food. But with my son and my wife there, they want food, especially with an hour and a half rain delay. What kind of ogre am I? Of course, I'm going to get them food. So I say to my wife, all right, what do you want? And she tells me, all right, we're going to get a hot dog for him, a Diet Coke for me, uh, maybe some French fries. I said, great, very simple, very simple order. I go back, and this is what got me to the mobile ordering. I go back into the Piazza Club, crazy lines. As you can imagine, there's a rain delay. So I said, you know, I'm going to try this mobile ordering. They told me all about the mobile order. So I click on the mobile ordering app, and it takes me to a menu. All right, I didn't think much of it. It was the Shake Shack menu. I said, okay, great. Not getting any Shake Shack stuff, but great. Mobile ordering, this will save me a lot of time. No information about where I'm supposed to pick up the order. I figure it'll be close because they're asking me my section number. So I put in where I sit, my seat number, the whole thing. Still not telling me where I pick up the food, but hey, mobile ordering, got to be convenient. I click on it. I buy the hot dog. I buy the the soda, the fries, whatever the hell else we got. And it says you will get a text message that will let you know when it's ready and where to pick it up. All so good so far. This is great. This is the future. Why would anybody wait on a line? Just mobile ordering. I get the text message and it says your order is already ready. 
you need to pick it up at the Shake Shack in center field. Like the Shake Shack in center field. I sit behind the plate. They're making me walk around the entire stadium to pick up a freaking hot dog and french fries. If I knew that, I wouldn't do more ordering. The hell's the point? To walk the center field? But hey, they got my money, Hoff. I got to go out there. So I said to my oldest son, Jet, you want to go on a hike? We got to go pick up our food. He's like, of course, this is exciting. So it takes forever to walk from home plate to the outfield. Everybody's in the stadium, like not in the bowl because the game hasn't started. Everybody's getting food. Everybody's going to the bathroom. Everybody's drinking. Everybody's inside. So you you can imagine. It's a sold-out crowd. It's a big, big stadium, big crowd. Took forever. Pushing, shoving, holding his hand tight. Finally get there. It was like a goddamn hike. Finally get there. I'm like, where the hell do I go? And there's a sign that says mobile ordering. And then there's a massive line at the mobile ordering. Now, I admit, the line is not as long as the actual Shake Shack, but it ain't far off. So we proceed to stand there for 30 minutes on a mobile ordering line to eventually pick up the most basic food one can have from the Shake Shack to then go again all the way around the building. We must have walked over at about, let's say, 725, just in time for first pitch at 840. Made first pitch, all is good, got the food. But what the hell? Can you warn us that the mobile ordering is going to take you A, to the outfield, and then B, it ain't even that special to get mobile ordering because you got to wait on a line. What is the point of asking your section? I don't know. I <laughs> thank you for saying that because I, I I take responsibility. I'm a big take responsibility guy. So I I wasn't to my wife angry at the Mets. I said, no, nah, this ain't the Mets' fault. I'm an idiot. I should have known better. And that was her response. She says, "How would you know better? They asked you your section number. You probably assumed they're gonna give you a mobile location that's close, and they didn't. Uh, yeah. Do, now listen." I, I almost did this at a, a game not too long ago, and I chose not to. I just decided I'm, I'm next to a stand. Let me just get up and go. Whatever. It's easier because right. I was concerned. I'm like, how are they going to know to either deliver to me or whatever? It just seemed like this confusion there. I'm an idiot. I overthought it. I just decided not to do what you did. But I would have been pissed if that. I would have been furious to then see a line. For, I would have canceled the Ugh. order. I, I was <laughs> thinking of leaving. There was a There was a part of me like, I'm not doing this, but – I already have my money. I don't want to fight them. Plus, my wife and son are hungry. Like, I got to deliver them the food. So to to go somewhere else, it it wasn't going to benefit me. But I want everyone out there, when you go to City, be warned. Now, maybe the mobile ordering is convenient for you. If you're sitting in the outfield, I can see why. And you want Shake Shack. No doubt. The line is shorter with mobile order. So you probably would save yourself a few minutes. But if you just want something basic, the way I did, I didn't get anything special from the Shake Shack. It's just a massive, massive waste of time. And and I've always made this point. I know this would uh, cost a lot of extra money, but I think it would bring in money for the Mets and it would create jobs. My theory has always been they should deliver to anywhere you sit, even if you're in the upper deck. Doesn't You don't need a special ticket. You hire more people that are delivery people. They'll make money off of tips. And I'm convinced more people will order food. More people would get food because – I think there's a lot of people, even especially now with the pitch clock, who are like, I don't want to wait online for an inning and a half. So, and and charge the crap out of it. You want to make it even more expensive, like you're paying a premium to have the food delivered? Fine. Because I'll tell you this right now, and I can't be the only one. I'll pay the premium if you're giving it to me. Well, here's the thing is you'll have people like yourself who's like, I don't want to miss a pitch. I'm here let me get the food. I don't care. I'll spend the amount of money. You'll see. Other, have other people be like, you know what? I, I'm not doing that. So it'll be a happy right. medium. It, it'll be split 50-50, I think. I think so. I think so. So be forewarned. Mobile ordering, a complete misdirection. All right? But let me ask you a question. Did your son think that that was the best hot dog of all time? No. <laughs> no the, the best part was... When I get back to the seat and I you know, give my wife the Diet Coke and I open the hot dog, I say, all right, Chet, you ready to eat your hot dog? He's like, nah, I'm all right. I'm like, what? 
He, he, ate the, he eventually <laughs> ate the hot dog, but immediately I was like, man, you got to eat that hot dog. Well, yeah, that, that was some experience. Then the fireworks were, the fireworks at City Field are not nearly as good as the fireworks at Chase Stadium because the fireworks at City Field, they shoot up from the, 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 the stadium, like the lights, they have kind of things that shoot up fireworks. And then they set up a couple of things on the field that shoot up fireworks. It's okay. I'm not saying it's terrible by any stretch, but I remember the fireworks at Chase Stadium being a lot more badass. Unless it's just my memories creating something better than what it actually was. And because the game didn't start till 8.40, my son ended up falling asleep in, I'd say, the sixth inning, which I said to my wife, yeah, the game would have been over. I, I, I don't blame him. So I ended up waking him up for the fireworks, and the fireworks must have been like 11.30, 11.50, whatever, whatever time it was. So it was, it was obviously a very late night on Friday night, and it didn't work. Because the Mets ended up getting shut out by the Toronto Blue Jays by a score of 3 nothing. One thing that was a little bothersome is I went up when the game was over to get my son because my wife and son ended up going back into the Piazza Club and falling asleep on the couches. So I'm sitting there by myself watching the game. I go back. I'm like, hey, let's wake him up. He can watch the fireworks. I'm away for 30 seconds and someone took my seats. <laughs> I had to come back and say, excuse me. I'm sorry. I was just getting up for a couple of minutes. But That's then we so ended cool. up watching the fireworks. Everyone had a fine time. Um, I do want to say something before we go to the next game because there was a positive in the first of the going into Saturday's game. Starting pitching for four straight games was yeah. like dominant. If I'm correct, I yeah. think it was 26 innings, 30 strikeouts, and three run, three earned runs in in those 26 innings between Sanga Verlander. Scherzer and Carrasco. I mean, we've been begging for great pitching, and they finally delivered. No doubt. No doubt about it. Uh, you know, the, the great starting pitching from the Philly series made us ignore the fact they stopped hitting after leaving Colorado. But, yeah, the starting pitching was great all the way until Sunday with Kodai Senga. Even Tyler McGill in game two of this series against the Blue Jays he did the same thing where he put a lot of guys on base. I mean, he puts just an absurd amount of people on baseball. Five guys, gave up five hits, five and a third innings. But bottom line was, Tyler McGill gave you as, I don't want to say as good as McGill will give you, but for him, a top-end performance. To his credit, he battles and fights his way out of jams. You know, first inning of this game, he puts the first two guys on base, and you're facing Vladimir Guerrero, Brandon Belt, Matt Chapman, and he gets out of it. He got Whit Merrifield to line out. Bottom, uh, top of the second inning, he walks the first two guys. He walks the seven hitter. He walks the eight hitter, gets a strikeout, a caught stealing, a strikeout. Puts a guy on base in the third, fights through it. Puts a guy on base in the fourth, fights through it. Puts a guy on base in the fifth, gets a Vladimir Guerrero double play. The issue was the sixth, and he was so close to getting out of it. Problem was, Buck said, enough. You've thrown a million pitches. You've thrown 103 pitches. I'm taking you out. He gives up a leadoff double. He issues a walk. So you got first and second, nobody out, nursing a one nothing lead. He gets a fly out on Merrifield, and then Buck says, I'm going to go to Brooks Rally, which I didn't think was a bad move, by the way. Despite the fact that McGill had not given up a run yet, he had put 10 guys on base. 10 guys on base, and at that point, he's retired. He's gotten 16 outs. If you frame it that way, you realize how bad it is. He got 16 outs. And he put 10 guys on base. And a few of those outs were double plays and caught stealings, which I don't want to say is lucky because he still got the outs, but, you know, sort of fortunate. One of them was his own pickoff. So I give credit to him. So he goes to Rayleigh with two on and one out. Rayleigh gets Varsho out. And here's the issue. All right, We may have a debate here because you may defend him. I know you're a big Lindor guy. I'm not anti-Lindor or pro-Lindor. I call it like it is. The Alejandro Kirk ground ball to shortstop. Tough play. He's got to make that play. That's a play Lindor has got to make. And if he makes that play, the inning is over. It's one nothing Mets, bottom of the sixth inning. Can they get the last nine outs and win the game one nothing? I don't know. It's a different game. It's different than what it turned into. Buck may manage the game slightly differently. But I thought that was the kind of play that, not saying it's an error, because it wasn't, but if you're an elite-level shortstop, you eat it up, you throw Kirk out. Instead, he knocks the ball down. It gets too far away from him. 
and Brandon Belt's able to round third and score, and all of a sudden there's a tie game. Do you agree that that's a play Lindor's got to make? You're going to fight me on that. No, I'm, I'm not going to fight you, but what I, what I will say is this, is his offense, we could say, has been putrid all season long. His defense has been basically flawless, basically. That was one of the biggest plays that he should have made that he didn't make, but those have been so few and far between. I can't kill him for that. I can't be like, oh, my God, you're such a terrible defender. But you're right. He should have made that play. It, it, the problem is there's no margin for error. The Met offense, and really any team, when your offense goes as cold as this, there's no margin for error. A small mistake can be the difference. I mean, giving up one run to the Toronto Blue Jays should not be your death knell. That should not be the thing that really hoses you. But unfortunately, it is because the Mets were unable to score any runs. And think about the one run they scored on Saturday. We were all annoyed when we saw the lineup. We saw that Alvarez was out of it. Nito was starting. We saw that Vogelback was back at DH. And Daniel Vogelback was the one guy who supplied a run. He rips that RBI double in the second inning. He scores Marte from first base. That was how the Mets had the one nothing lead. And then in the sixth, he came up with two on and two out. And off the bat, I thought he was coming through again. He ripped the line drive. Unfortunately, it was right at George Springer. Here's the truth. Here's the dead honest truth as much as people don't want to hear it. And you just got to call like it is. That's why you can't have these, I don't like this guy, I love this guy, because then you don't call it like it is. I, I've been pissed at Vogelback because he hasn't hit. It's just what it is. But on Saturday, he was their only hope for offense. <laughs> That's just the reality. He drove in the only run, and when he came up with two on and two out in the sixth inning, he ripped the ball that felt unlucky right at George Springer. So I didn't want him in the lineup either. I'm not going to lie to you, but to Daniel Vogelback's credit, he came through. But then after that, the offense did nothing. They did nothing. So when that run scores on the play Lindor doesn't make, the rest of this game feels as if it's a death march because if you can't score a run and they couldn't and they had some opportunities, then how the hell are you going to win the game? You're going to wait till there's a runner on second, the 10th inning, and hope you scratch out a run? It was it was very frustrating to watch. The eighth inning, too, because in the eighth inning, Pete Alonzo gets a break because Matt Chapman, who's so good defensively, makes a rare miscue, and then Alonzo steals second. And you got Beatty and you got Marte with a runner on second, less than two outs in the eighth inning, a base hit away from taking the lead, and Brett Beatty has looked awful the last few games, which is why when he wasn't in the lineup Sunday against Kikuchi, it's tough to scream and yell. Beatty hasn't hit. And he came up in a big spot in that eighth inning against Nate Pearson, and he struck out. And Starling Marte struck out. And then you have the Met bullpen in this game against Toronto. So let's go through what Buck does. Buck goes to Ottavino against the top of the order in the seventh inning. I applaud it. I got no issue with it. He's going to one of his best relievers against their better hitters. He pitches a one, two, three inning, which included the pitch clock controversies. There was a pitch clock violation strikeout of Bo Bichette. And then with the count three and one on Vlad Guerrero Jr., the clock hits zero. Adovino throws a pitch. It isn't called. And Guerrero grounds out. And the Blue Jays are pissed. And I think that's what led to John Schneider eventually getting ejected a few innings later. He was arguing balls and strikes, but I think it goes back to the inconsistencies of the pitch clock. So Adovino pitches a great seventh. He gives up a leadoff double to belt in the eighth. Gets a ground out, but he advances and then gets another huge ground out. Credit to Lindor. Makes the play, makes the throw home to get the lead runner, Kevin Biggio. And it looks like they got a chance to get through the eighth. And that's when Buck went to Robertson with a runner on first and two outs and Var show up. Again, like it's a by the book fine move. Robertson's tougher on lefties. We know about Adovino's issues with lefties. There's a runner on first, there's one out. Uh, there's a runner on, I'm sorry, there's a runner on first two outs because he just got the second out. And Robertson, I thought was going to get through it. He gives up a two-base hit to Varsho. But then to his credit, strikes out Alejandro Kirk. He gets through it. Throws a bunch of pitches, but gets through it. Now we go to the ninth inning. He gives up the one-out single to Springer, gives up the stolen base, and he strikes out Bo Bichette. Look, here's the reality of this next spot. I think if you've listened to any talk radio on our radio station in the last 24 hours, if you've read any newspaper, if you've been on Twitter, 
this is one of those first guesses that everyone knows it's obvious and it's bad. So I don't know how much time we should spend screaming about it because it was such a stupid move. It was such an obvious move that I'm not splitting any atoms here. With a runner on second and two outs in a tie game in the ninth inning with Vladimir Guerrero Jr. at the plate. And by the way, the guy on deck is not your normal cleanup hitter, Brandon Belt. It's actually Kevin Biggio, who's hitting 175, and you got no one else on the bench that scares you. This is as no-brainer or an intentional walk as one can have. It's a bad move. And we know what happens. Robertson gets ahead of him. Guerrero rips an RBI double. It's the difference in this game. We all know it's stupid. I don't think anybody listening right now is going to debate this. So let's get to what Buck said. Because I was really curious to hear what was he thinking? Like, we all know it's bad. Like, why would you face Vlad when you can face Biggio? Why? With the base open. Why? Like, what's the thing? Even Robertson, he's better against lefties than even righties, right? Doesn't he have the reverse split? So, like, I just couldn't wait to eventually hear what Buck had to say. And Buck, essentially, if you get past the rigmarole of, well, I trust Robbie. No, I trust David. It's not about trusting David. It's about putting him in the best situation to succeed. His answer was the 10th inning. His answer was, well, it puts us in a better spot in the 10th inning. If we get Vlad out, now Biggio's leading off the inning as opposed to Matt Chapman. I'm sorry. You cannot manage for the 10th inning. Not with one of the best hitters in the sport at the plate. So I was all ears to hear the reason. The reason was way too cute. You can, first of all, what does that say about your offense? You have no confidence that you can win the game in the ninth inning? Like you're already conceding out. We're getting to the 10th inning. You can't think that way. You got to get to the 10th inning. You can't let a guy, I don't care what kind of slump Vladimir Guerrero Jr. is in, because that base hit gets him out of the slump, as we saw on Sunday when he hit a home run. That was an inexcusable, boneheaded move by Buck Showalter, and nobody can defend it. That's that's one of those moves where we're not having a debate about it. It's undefendable. And the only thing that annoyed me more than the decision and the hit was his reason. Well, puts us in a better spot in the 10th inning. The 10th, with thinking about the 10th inning in the ninth inning of a tie game with a guy who could have won the MVP two years ago at the plate. I mean, that's like saying, like, you know, it'll really set us up nicely, too, when we get to the 12th and 13th as well. Like, I mean, why do you care about that? What I've known in baseball is when you have a chance – to win the game, you go out there and win the game. You can't think about the, I got to set myself up for something later because that's when you're going to get bit in the ass. They did. Loser mentality too, because you also have to say, hey, let me just get this out. And I believe we could scratch out a run and win the baseball game. And obviously the ninth inning rolls around. They do nothing against Eric Swanson. They did get a base hit by Mark Canna with one out. Alvarez Got the count to three and one, roll envisioning. Maybe he has another magic moment. He ends up flying out. And then Brandon Nimmo, who I know he had two hits in this game, but he put together one of the meekest at-bats when he struck out on three pitches. And the Mets lost this game to the Toronto Blue Jays and really starts to, to make you worried after losing on Friday. Now you back it up with losing on Saturday. Uh, honestly, just brutal. I mean, just a freaking brutal loss. <laughs> And I'll talk a little bit more about this in a little bit because I saw some of the emails I'm going to read. But I was watching the last few innings of this game at the Westchester County Center in preparation for a WWE house show. So this was a weird viewing experience, which I'll get to in a little bit. As far as the Sunday game is concerned, look, Kodai Sang has got to figure it out. I mean, because he was bad. I mean, there's, there's just no denying what we saw. He didn't have the worst first inning. He issued a two-out walk, and then Francisco Alvarez actually picked off Guerrero at first base, which got reviewed, challenged, and succeeded. But after that first inning, his command was off. He was giving up ropes. He got bailed out on a really good defensive play by Lindor, made a diving play in that second inning. He gives up the bomb to Guerrero. He issues more walks. 
And finally, Buck has to take him out of the game. Just a, a bad performance. I mean, I, we could spend a lot of time on it. You walked five guys in two and two-thirds innings. I know Alvarez had the miscue in which he tried to pick another guy off, and this time he threw it in the center field, and that allowed Matt Chapman to score from second. They reviewed that play. Very, very close play. I thought he may have been out, but one thing we've learned about review is when it's that close, they're just not going to overturn it. But it doesn't take away from the fact that Senga was just bad. He was really, really bad. The one thing that surprised me is that this bullpen, really Steven Nagosa, came in and kept him in the game, which was surprising because I'm sitting there with my family at this game thinking they're going to get killed. Like this is going to turn into an 8 9 nothing kind of story. They were down 4 nothing. Nagosa got a big out when he came in after Senga was pulled. They got a run in the third on the fam home run as Nagosa starts to pitch one, two, three innings. They get a run in the fifth on the FAM home run, another FAM home run. And then they come back and tie it in the sixth. They get two more home runs. Pete Alonzo hits that close home run that was initially called a double. They finally called it a home run. Or no, they called it a home run. It was challenged. They kept it a home run. He's now got the most at City. Marte hits that bomb. City field's exploding. Mets come back and tie the game. And then instantly, Dominic Leone gives it all right back. So we go to... Who should pitch there? Should Leon, who, remember, got a big out to get out of the sixth, got a big ground out with runners on second and third two outs, should Buck, once the game is now tied seventh inning, heart of the order coming up, go a little bit better? And I think he should have. Like, I give Leon credit for getting that big ground out, but now that it's a tie game and you have an off day on Monday, you have an off day, okay? So you have no baseball to worry about on Monday before the Atlanta series. Can you use Adam Adovino again? Can you use David Robertson again? Are they available after all the pitches they threw on Saturday? They didn't pitch Friday. They did not pitch Thursday. Right? They pitched Tuesday and they pitched Wednesday. So nothing Thursday, nothing Friday, pitched a lot on Saturday. I don't see why they can't come into this game. That's just me. I don't see why they can't, especially in the seventh inning when you have the heart of the order coming up. Like you've got to find a way after you have just fought all the way back from being down four nothing. You got to find a way to keep this game tied. And Dominic Leone stays in the game. And what does he do? One out single, Brandon Belt on a one two pitch. That always drives me nuts. He's ahead of the count, hits a bomb the center field, and you could turn the freaking lights out because the Met offense. Wasn't all of a sudden going to wake up. They had four solo home runs in this game. Great. That's fantastic. Thank you, Tommy Pham. And they did nothing else. Nothing else. They get a leadoff man on in the seventh. Alvarez promptly grounds into a double play. And then they got mowed down by Simber, Swanson, and Romano. So, yeah, my criticism would be I haven't used Adovino and Robertson on Thursday and Friday. Yes, I used them a lot on Saturday. I acknowledge that. There's no game Monday. I got to try to avoid getting swept. I got to try to find a way to keep this freaking game tied. Maybe I scratch out a run and maybe, dare I say, you avoid the sweep, win a game, and we look at this homestand differently. We really do. Mets win the finale of this series. Sure, they lose two out of three. That's a four and two homestand, which we all would assign for. Instead, we live in the land of mediocrity. As far as the boos are concerned, I want to make something clear. I've always said this. I'm not one to boo. I don't boo my own guys, but I get why you all do. I'm not criticizing anybody for doing it. And right now, and it's always the case, the poster boy for the boos is going to be the highest paid guy. It's always the case. And that's why we can critique Nimmo and we can critique McNeil and we can go after Alonzo. Whether anybody likes it or not, it's going to be Francisco Lindor. I was walking into the Westchester County Center with the game on my little uh, phone, holding my son's hand. And a guy next to me, we started talking about the Mets. And he said to me, why is Lindor the first guy people go after? And I said, you, you know the reason? The reason is the money. The reason is why Carlos Beltran would be turned on by Mets fans. The reason why Jason Bay was turned on by Mets fans. It's the money and it's the hype. What Lindor needs to do, and I'm going to give him credit because he's done it, is he's got to handle it. Giancarlo Stanton 
handles it. Why is Stan the guy Yankee fans go after? It's the same thing. You get paid a lot of money. You got a resume from elsewhere. You're going to be the poster boy for it. And Stan, to his credit, has always handled it brilliantly. Lindor, it was after Saturday's game, was asked about it, and he said, I don't try to tune it out. I don't try to ignore it. I get why they're doing it. They're frustrated. We're all frustrated. You got to say stuff like that because it's that's the only thing you can say. And you got to not let it bother you because Met fans don't want to hate Francisco Lindor. They're not out there to hate him. They're out there saying, you got to perform. And right now he's not. You know, last week we were talking about what kind of year he's had. And I was saying, look, the average is bad. We all know it. The OPS is bad. We all know it. But he's driving in a lot of runs and he's getting clutch hits. So all those numbers mean nothing. Well, a week later, he got no clutch hits. He struck out every other at bat. And so now you start to pick at the average and pick at the OPS, which wasn't good a week ago. But when you have a week full of doing nothing, or for the most part, nothing, it becomes easier to attack it. He's got to be better. We all know that. He's not the only one who needs to be better. But of course, he's going to be the face of it because he's going to hear the most boos. And he has to learn from what happened two years ago with Baez that you can't respond by attacking us. You can't respond by saying, ah, everybody's an idiot. You got to just go out and play better. And the Mets need Lindor to play better. They need Alonzo, despite the home run, to play better. They need McNeil to play better. They need Nimmo to play better. I I stand by something I've said a lot this year, even though we're now 60 games into the year. I think this offense can be good. I think it should be good. It still isn't my biggest issue or my biggest worry. I know it's easy to say it should be based on what just happened over the last six games, but I look at the guys in this lineup, and I know what they're capable of doing. And they got to be better especially now, because this new losing streak coincides with going to Atlanta. And that's not a fun place to go. The Atlanta Braves won their final two games of this series. So after getting to three and a half games out, the Mets are now five and a half games out. They're now six in the loss column. Why that matters, you can get buried over the next three days. You can. Let's go out and lose all three games. They're nine games out in the loss column. I know what Atlanta did last year. The Mets ain't going to reverse that. So all of a sudden, and I think these games in Atlanta were going to be big either way, but now they're even bigger. Because if you think the division matters, if you want to win the National League East, they got to go out there and win a couple of games. They got to find a way to win a couple of games. Confidence-wise, they got to win a couple of games. They've got Carlos Carrasco going in the opener. Who the hell knows what to expect from him? He was great in his last start, but none of us know. They're going to take on Bryce Elder. What's Bryce Elder done? He leads the league in ERA, just in case you need an update. 24-year-old kid leads the league in ERA. Then you have the starting pitching edge in game two. Max Scherzer, who really needs to pitch well in Atlanta, talked about that on the last Rico, against Charlie Morton. And then you got Verlander against Spencer Strider. What's going to happen in Atlanta? I have no idea. I guess I lean towards bad stuff will happen in Atlanta. I mean, the Mets haven't been a good road team. The Braves coming off back-to-back wins against a good Diamondback team. And just based on our history, based on what we've seen in our lifetimes. But this is this is a tough spot because I think at times I have thought, I can't speak for every Met fan, I have thought, okay, we figured things out. Okay, we're about to go on a run. Okay, five and one homestand. Okay, respond to that bad road trip sweeping the Philadelphia Phillies. Things are going to be fine. And every time that happens, they've responded with something bad. And here we are, 60 games into the year, and they're 30 and 30. And at some point you wonder, is that just who they are? I I still think the Mets should be better than that. I think they are better than that. But we've had a lot of start and stops. And it feels like these next three games in Atlanta and even the three in Pittsburgh, let's give the Pirates credit. The Pittsburgh Pirates have had a good year. And if you look at standings this early and care about them, well, those games matter too because the Mets and Pirates may well battle for a playoff spot. Right now they're close. I can't tell you it's going to be the case in two months, but right now it's close. So it does feel like these next six games, 
before the Subway Series, which is so, it's not as important. I've always said that, and I stand by that. Those games are all for arguing with your neighbors and crap. In terms of where the Mets stand in the National League, trying to get back in this race with Atlanta, a Pittsburgh team that may well be a factor for the wild card all year. I don't know. These games matter big time. And let me tell you another reason why they matter. Just in case you forgot, because you better have a reminder. And this is why these National League games do matter more. There's no more one-game playoffs. It's dead. So if the New York Mets, and forget the Braves, and the Pittsburgh Pirates finish with 87 wins this season, and that's the last playoff spot, what do you think happens? Think they flip a coin? Think they play a game at PNC Park? No, no, no. They have a tiebreaker, and that tiebreaker is head-to-head. So go win two out of three against the Pirates. I mean, it matters. The tiebreaker last year with Atlanta. Let's not forget that. It was head-to-head. Mets and Braves finished with the same record. We like to forget that. It matters. These games matter. And that's why I'm not saying this for any other reason than I believe it. For the month of June, a week, week and a half into June, these games against the Braves and the Pirates are enormous. Enormous. Now, let me get to some of your emails because I know we got a lot of them and a lot of angry people. Let me start off with a a lighthearted email from Lee Schneider. Lee, his subject is Evan watching Mets game on phone at wrestling event. That's his uh, subject. (laughs) Hey, Evan, great seeing you in White Plains at WWE. I had a great time with my son. I hope you did, too. Jeff, did you have a great time at WWE? Yes. Yes? What was your favorite match? You don't know? Okay. (laughs) I listened to Game 2 of the Blue Jays series on the radio on my long drive up from Long Island. And I was following on GameCast as I waited online to get to the Westchester County Center with my six-year-old. I looked over and saw a familiar redhead with a phone in one hand watching the Mets on the SNY app and his child's hand in the other. I kept our conversation to a minimum because I didn't want to impose on your night out with your son. That's very sweet. I got to thinking, though, that arena is a dump and you are a noted DVR Mets watcher. You could easily have gone through the event without being spoiled. Why didn't you DVR the game and watch when you got home? It's a good question. I'm going to give the answer to this because I am a noted DVR watcher. Because the game started at 430, supposed to start earlier, but obviously the Hall of Fame stuff, which was great. um, I figured I'm going to watch the game. So I watched it with my dad, with my son, between 4.30 and about 6.45. I happen to live very close to the Westchester County Center. So we left and was there in five minutes. I feel bad for Lee from Long Island, but that was the beauty of the Westchester County Center. The location is the best part. Um, so I figured, you know what? It's like two, two hours, 2.10, 2.15 of the game. I may watch the whole game, depending on how quick it is. Let me watch it. Once it's the seventh inning and I'm now leaving, and I'm now going to a wrestling event, I figured, why have this hanging over my head? Why try to ignore things? Uh, I'm going to take videos. I'm probably going to send it to, like, uh, you know, my mother-in-law and my mom. So why why screw around? Because when you send text messages, you see other text messages, obviously. And I may get spoiled. So my thought was, since I was watching most of the game anyway, let me just at least finish it, and then I don't have to worry about it. And that's exactly what happened. And the game ended prior to the event starting. Game ended about 7.15. So, yeah, he's right. Lee is right. I had the Met game on my phone. My dad was looking over my shoulder watching it. Jet was sort of into it. I was really into it. And then as I was waiting online, me and everybody else was talking about the Mets. (laughs) That was basically my night. So I want to answer that. That was my reasoning, Lee. Thank you very much. Uh, Let's go to Ian Nolan. Ian writes, Lindor. lineups have generally proven to be almost insignificant from a run standpoint, but it's probably past time for Lindor and his 283 on base to move down. His on base is now the lowest of anybody in the everyday lineup. The more we see of Lindor, the more it feels like he's a good to very good player, but certainly not a franchise cornerstone like he's being paid. So the real question is, do we move him down in the lineup? I wouldn't be opposed to it if there was a better option. Like that, that's my issue with all this. Now you're right. His on base is unacceptable. No, no one's going to deny that. You cannot have a 283 on base and have that be acceptable right now. 
But if your plan is, okay, I want to drop Lindor to six or seven, how are you lining it up? And if you care so much about on base, does that mean you want Daniel Vogel back towards the top of the order? Because despite his lack of hitting, he still gets on base. So I'm not as enthralled with shaking up the lineup. And even on Sunday, Buck really didn't shake the lineup that much. He, he didn't have Nimmo play, so naturally needed a leadoff hitter. And I guess Canna for McNeil, you want to say that. But there was a lefty on the mound, which is probably part of his thinking. So I don't even think the lineup on Sunday was that significantly shooken up. I think it was just affected by the fact that Nimmo wasn't playing. I'm not big on, hey, you got to shake the lineup up. So I don't feel like they really need to do much. And I would throw these guys out there and just hope they hit. Because I don't know if batting Lindor sixth is going to get him going. I don't know if, you know, moving McNeil to the leadoff spot, something I know you've liked before, and dropping Nimmo is going to get guys going. So I err on the side of just put the guys out there and hope they turn it around. See, I, I thought it was a bigger deal today that McNeil wasn't batting second. I, I and I and when when Nimmo wasn't in the game, the fact that Fan was leading off, I'm like, listen, now that ended up working out. But I mean, how often does it work out? It doesn't work out as much as we we want to make it sound. And again, I'm not opposed to keeping things the same and not shaking things up. But I think Buck just constantly is is sitting people that we prefer not to see sat. Uh, I know Beatty hasn't been – listen, he's been awful. So I, I respect the fact that they had to sit him today against the left-hander. But still, the fact that he they went from Alvarez smoking the ball at ninth to move him to second where after a day or two doesn't work out, goes back to ninth. You know, stop screwing people. That That's my issue. I don't think it cools guys off, though, to go from nine to two. I don't. I, I don't think that's the reason Alvarez has cooled off. No, I don't. I don't. I'm not saying that's exactly the reason why, but there was no reason to touch that either. So a lot of people were clamoring for, well, he's doing so great at nine, make him go to two or move him up in the lineup. And I'm like, he's in every spot he's supposed to be, every spot he needs to get up, he's in a big spot and he's coming through. And guess what? He's hitting before Nimmo, which is basically the top of the order. Isn't that right. kind of like an additional leadoff? I love that. Yeah, no, I, I've always said that. I like having a, a capable hitter batting ninth. Peter writes, here at City Field in the ninth inning, he's writing from the Sunday game, miserable output even with four solo home runs, but isn't it pathetic that they can't even put batting averages on the scoreboard? <laughs> to make things look higher than they are, they just list OPS. Well, at least the fried chicken sandwich on the glazed donut was good. I think a part of why OPS is put up more than batting average is because that's the more important stat. It just is. And even though there's still a lot of people that go to games and don't really know what an OPS is, and believe it or not, that's true. There are still people that are like, what's OPS again? What's a good OPS? What's an average OPS? I think that we are moving in a direction where more and more people are realizing that's just the stat that matters more. So I don't think this is about let's, we don't want to put average up because it's so low. (laughs) I think it's just, that's what they think matters. Asher Weiss writes, you are what your record says you are. After 60 games, the Mets are 30 and 30. That's the definition of mediocrity. We can no longer fall back on the old, it's early excuse. Sure, it's a long-ass season, but we're well over a third of the way through. This team is good enough to tease us into thinking they're actually good, but then they go two and four against the Cubs and Rockies or get swept by the Blue Jays. They play like a 750 team for a bit. And then they shock us with a stretch that makes them look like a 250 team. That's exactly what 500 teams do. If this sounds overtly negative, I don't mean to. Just being a realist and trying to jolt us out of the fantasy of thinking that without major changes, the team is capable of competing for the division. It's not. And I think it's time to start worrying about the playoffs too. But again, if we make the right changes, all is not lost. So what are we going to do about it? Okay, a couple of things. I remember saying this about a month ago. And maybe we should have realized this even before the season. The Atlanta Braves are a better baseball team. Now, I look at these games coming up, and and they're huge, and I want to win it. I want to get back into the race. But talent-wise, they're a better team. And I think we've known that for a long time. Okay, so I I don't know if necessarily what's happened over the last three games against the Blue Jays has changed any of that. The Braves are a better baseball team. Am I convinced that this is who they are, 30-30? and I'm not there yet. But the longer this goes, the the tougher it's going to be to deny it. 
because we are 60 games into the season. We're no longer with it's early. And I don't think any of us want to hear any more about the Phillies from last year or the Braves or all the other great examples of teams that were average and then all of a sudden turned it on. If the Mets are going to do that, then go do it. Go do it. Because those are things that are really tough to predict. Like no one sat here and thought the Philadelphia Phillies were going to turn it on, make the playoffs, and go win the pennant. Like it happened. So I can't sit here and make those proclamations about this team. I do think that if Verlander and Scherzer are healthy and they're going to be able to pitch, and that was the one positive outside of the Senga game on Sunday that you got out of this homestand, they pitched their butts off for five out of six games, that their offense will come back. Their offense is not this bad. But yeah, when you get to 60 games in a season, it's tough to continue to utter the lines of, it's early, it's early, it's early. Because it's not early. At some point, you are who you are. And obviously, we all hope this is not who they are. Uh, One thing that was cool this weekend was the Hall of Fame. Big fan of Al Leiter. Hojo was my childhood. And obviously, Gary and Howie are the voices. They are the voices of Mets fandom. I thought Howie Rose's speech was amazing, especially when he talked about now, there's nobody that loves the Mets or is more proud of the Mets than me, and you could put that in the book. Like, that's just a great line. And then even the the comment about winning a championship, how he has that one other call he needs to do, which is the World Series, and that he believes in Bach and the team. He's really trying to fire the team up. The problem is the team responded by doing nothing. The team took that speech and said, yeah, we'll show you. Let's score five runs in two games and lose the final two games of this series. We'll do that for you. What haunted me on Friday was Friday was a sellout. They announced 42,000 people for that fireworks night. And seeing that full city field reminded me of the playoffs. And then the way they played reminded me of the playoffs. And it's almost like, can this team not play when it's sold out? (laughs) Can they not play when the eyes are on them and there's 42,000 people there? It was just a very, very discouraging weekend against the Toronto Blue Jays. Very, very discouraging. And you hope they could turn things around, but this is going to be a big test. The Atlanta Braves for three, the Pittsburgh Pirates for three, and I think we'll throw in a couple of extra Ricos. And I promised one last week. Things got very busy this week, so we only did your normal two Ricos. Or no, did we do? No, we did two. We did one after each series. I think with the Braves series coming up, we'll throw a couple of instant reactions in there. And I definitely want to do a podcast, and we're going to do it this week, on the could have been offseason. All the targets that the Mets could have had, that some wanted us to have, and how things would have worked out in the alternate universe of the Mets acquiring those targets. So we'll get to that coming up this week as well. You can email the pod, thericob at gmail.com, thericob at gmail.com. Craig and I, 2 o'clock on the fan, Monday through Friday, and obviously Hoff with Tiki and Tierney at 10 a.m. on the fan. We appreciate you listening and downloading. Rico Bronya. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Rico Bronya podcast. It's amazing, isn't it? Make sure you download it now to keep it on you at all times.